You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey everybody, good to be back. You know what? I just realized we are kicking off the third year of the podcast here today. Yeah, we are. And uh, it's pretty ex- I again, I want to apologize. I want to start with an apology. Anybody who listened to last week's show and that happened to be your first show, that was probably a confusing experience. I'm glad you're still here. Uh, that's something we do just once, one time a year, and uh, it's wild. You know, it's it's fun and it's weird. We're hoping to get back on track this week with sort of our regularly scheduled programming. But there have been a lot of new listeners coming on board, so hello to all the new listeners. Appreciate having you out there. Couple housekeeping things here, uh, real quick. First of all, Victoria's not here this week. Ah. Did you notice? You probably didn't notice because you haven't been listening yet, but it's true. She's not here. Rachel, who's who's here? Who is this? Oh, we have my friend Alicia Little, who is a naturalist about town. They're amazing and very knowledgeable and has been on the podcast before hi right our, our listeners who've been with us for a long time are like wait a minute this this name <laughs> sounds familiar alicia you are our first returning guest on the show so aside from mr brett w Sieber, who was of course uh just on last week but regular guests you're our first uh, returning guest so thanks for coming on this week and filling in for victoria yeah thanks yeah. for having me back i'm excited to be back and to talk about more weird stuff Oh, it's always well, an excursion. you know we love. <laughs> we love the weird stuff. I'm kicking <laughs> things off this week. And uh, speaking of weird, I, I, I'm going to straight up tell you, uh, I want to think about giants. Giants? Giants? Okay. I like giants. You down with that? I, Kirk might what be giants. giants? <laughs> yes, Kirk might be giants. Kirk might be uh, a I giant. Mean, I, I, of course, I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big, they, they, they might be giants fan. Not the giants we're talking about. I'm thinking about just... I want you to picture giants in your head. Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners are uh, you know, fans of Tolkien. Ex- that kind of giant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you think about giants, uh, giants are big, right? I mean, larger than us. Hence living on the name giant. A scale yes. that is, hence, yes. A scale that is different than uh, the scale we are used to. They might be, I'm not talking about like a... Um, like an Andre the Giant size or like a Hagrid the Giant who is part giant if you're going to be a nerd about it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like full-on giants. We're talking 40, 50, 60, 100, maybe even 200 foot tall. Like the big, right. the big Jack giants. Like, like, like kaiju yeah. levels. Yes. True giants who are yeah. living life on a different scale than we even are. I, I think that's it's, it, it becomes kind of hard to comprehend, mm. right? And people yeah. are like, why is he talking about giants? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> But not only, I think, do are giants big in terms of Ooh. stature, but also big in times in terms of time span in a lot of lore and whatnot. Giants mm-hmm. are long lived. Mm-hmm. So giants mm-hmm. might be living. I mean, I guess a human can live like 100 years or so. But what if you're talking two, three, 
four, five, six, seven, a thousand years. Imagine what it would be like to live a thousand years. Oh, and by the way, be uh, 200 feet tall. That would change your whole perception of of kind of what it means to be in be in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a really different way of of thinking. And so what I'm here to tell you is that um I, giants are real. Uh-huh. I think I know where oh, you're going giants with are this. real. I, I I Rachel, oh, you probably do. I'm there. <laughs> but what you may not know, what you may not know is that giants um they're at war. There's a war going on. There's a war um, with kind the of giants. A cold war. What? They're well, not with the giants. There's a war between the giants. And okay. you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s when I was a youngster, and so the Cold War was like a really big thing. We were convinced we were going to be nuked at any moment. It was a uh, interesting time to grow up. So, <laughs> a, a, a Cold War though uh, was this idea that like you were at war, but there was no actual. Battles being fought, maybe some little skirmishes here and there on mm-hmm. the edges, but like it wasn't like a full on war. And I feel like the giants are fighting a cold war that sometimes explodes into a hot war, but mostly is a cold war. And you kind of go, well, if the giants were fighting a cold war, would we even notice well, if these creatures lived like for thousands would. of years? And I'm thinking about like, well, I'm thinking about like the Ents, you know, in uh-huh. like Lord of the Rings, mm. who are. Um, like everything happens so slowly, <laughs> right? That like, you're kind of thinking like, if, if they had a cold war, would you even notice? Hmm. Uh, and yeah. I'm here to tell you, uh, most of you probably haven't noticed because we do live amongst giants and I'm guessing Rachel has already keyed in and maybe you have keyed in at home too. To the giants I'm talking about, Rachel, do me a solid here. What giants am I talking about? Okay, so it's giants that are thousands of years old, giants that we're living I mean, on? They, they potentially can be. Okay. We live amongst. We live amongst. Are they, are they humans, Right Kurt? at this very moment. Well, well, Rachel, I told her they can live for thousands of years yeah. uh, or hundreds of years and could be hundreds of feet tall. How many hundred foot tall, thousand year old humans do you know? Okay, that's fair. I thought you were getting metaphorical with us, Kirk. I, that's where I was going. Um, Here's the weird part, oh. Rachel. I am being 100% literal at this point. What? Ooh, ooh, oh, it's, it's oh, trees. Yeah. It's trees. Oh, yeah. It's trees. Yeah. <laughs> it's trees. Yes. So here's the thing. I, I, what, what I really wanted to focus on and talk about, which is one of the oh, cool good things that goes on about ends. trees. Oh, that was mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, see what I did there? <laughs> there's so many things about trees that are amazing, but I think it's kind of like the whole idea of we have this metaphor of not seeing the forest for the trees. Right. Um, and often I think we don't appreciate how weird and bizarre and amazing trees are because they're just trees. They're the things mm-hmm. we chop down and make chairs and paper out of you know it's like they, they seem like sort of they're just trees mm-hmm. and trees are amazing and there's this one little thing i wanted to touch on this week to get you th- all thinking about trees and maybe you'll be looking at trees differently today there is a battle going on a war if you will between t- trees and it, it treats tree species and individual trees mm-hmm. and this is um a war for the same reason humans fight wars it's a war over resources 
Who's going to get the sunlight? Who's going to get the physical space? Who's going to get the water? Those the, that's the coming war for humans. So these are the things trees battle over. And what I think we don't often think about is the fact that it isn't just something that happens between two separate trees, but some of these battles take place on an ecosystem scale. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that cold war literally breaks into a hot war, a, a, a battle instead of, instead of a, a war, if you will, if you mm -hmm. will. And the thing I want to talk about is warfare by fire. Now mm. trees cannot start a fire. Okay. No. Fire in nature is going to be started by um, a careless camper leaving their campsite going, someone flicking a cigarette butt out a car window, um, you know, a faulty uh, power line making some sparks, or just lightning, which is what the main source of fire has been for millions of years. And trees have had millions, hundreds of millions of years to figure out that sometimes fire comes through their, uh, their habitat. And so I want you to picture for a moment the humble oak tree. And mm. many of our listeners will know what an oak leaf looks like. But if you don't, you know, oak leaf is sort of picture like a, an egg shape, right? But then instead of that sort of core egg shape or that flat oval, coming off all sides of that are little fingers. These fingers extend off the leaves. And often we don't think about why does a particular plant have a certain shape of leaf? Mm -hmm. And it can seem totally random, like, oh, this one's kind of heart-shaped, and this one's a circle, and this one has all kinds of little tendril-like fingers coming off it. But, like, mm. why? Why have all those shapes <laughs> in nature? Why, not, why aren't all the leaves the same shape? And it has to do sometimes with this battle and with fire. So here's a little story I want to tell you. Oak leaves, when they fall off a tree, all those little fingers, they start to dry sooner than the core part of the leaf, which is not huh. as, um, it doesn't have as much surface area, hmm. right? Because it's just sort of that oval shape. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the fingers start to dry first. And as they dry, because they are like little finger likes, they start to curl up. And so if you go out next fall, you know, and find yourself a dried uh, oak leaf, mm -hmm. they have curled up into this gnarled, uh, sort of twisted shape. Mm -hmm. And you're going, woo. Big deal. It is <laughs> it a big deal. It makes a nice crunchy sound. It's a huge when, deal. Well, it's a very big deal. It makes a nice crunchy sound when we walk on oak oh, leaves. But so those satisfying. curled up leaves, they when they land on top of each other or get blown on top of each other, they won't sit flat. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ah, air pockets in between yeah. them, which lets them dry even more. Oak mm -hmm. leaves become amazingly dry. And when they stack up on the forest floor, if there's a spark, they will ignite and they will burn very well because there's lots of spaces for oxygen between the leaves. I have been in an oak forest when there's been a forest fire, uh, working on fighting a forest fire. And it is not like huge flames reaching to the sky. There's, these flames are only a few feet off the ground. But when there are millions of, of oak leaves on fire, it is very hot. Mm -hmm. It is extremely hot and it will kill many things in its path. Mm. But the thing about an oak tree is they also have very thick bark specifically to protect them from fire. Mm -hmm. So we have a species that is has good armor, good protection from fire, but whose leaves also literally encourage fire. Now, who is also sometimes found in those forests? Maple. Maple trees. Mm -hmm. And basswood trees, also known as the linden tree. 
And uh, basswood trees and maple trees have very flat leaves. Basswood leaves are almost round or kind of heart-shaped. Yeah. And uh, maple leaves, yeah, they've got a couple kind of arms on them, but they don't curl up. The no. The teeny tiny tips curl up, but they really don't curl up when They're they fall down. They're pretty flat. They stack up, and they stack up into a mat that gets wet, and it sticks together. Air can't get in. They can't dry out. You can go out, and those of you who have maple trees in your yard, you know, you go to rake them, and like an inch or a half inch thick mat of leaves just rolls up like a big carpet, mm-hmm. right? So what happens is maple trees are who have thin bark that cannot tolerate fire because they mm. will die in a fire. They literally put down a fire suppression blanket hmm. around themselves to stop fire. So you have these two species that are literally fighting over the resources, one of whom is literally trying to create forest fires and one that is putting down a fire suppressing suppressing blanket in the forest <laughs> trying to stop forest fires. So it's like, oh my gosh, these these giants we live amongst are are at war with each other and they are literally fighting each other with fire, <laughs> trying to kill each other with fire. Yeah. <clears throat> or stop stop the fire and it we don't stop to notice. You know, we don't notice that these things that are happening on a grander scale than us are out there in nature. And I think it's 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 so amazing. So this little side note, little coda to this is in this battle, if you have two trees, one that encourages fire and one that is able to suppress fire, which do you think is going to win? I think it depends on how many of the trees there are. Like if it's like on the edge and there's more oak trees, Mm -hmm. then the oaks are going to win. But if it's like deep in a maple basswood forest and there's a oak tree here and there, the maples and basswoods are going to win. Well, and you've hit upon one of the key things. You mentioned the maple basswood forest. Mm -hmm. The reason such a thing as a maple basswood forest exists, the forest I work in every day is a maple basswood forest. And the climax condition, the the end state of that forest is all almost all maples and basswoods. Some oaks can get in there and stuff, but they mm-hmm. will never, the oaks will never take over that forest. However, if you start getting maples and basswoods into an oak forest, they will eventually completely take it over mm, and it really? will become a maple basswood forest. Huh. Turns huh. out that whole fire suppression technique, they grow faster than oaks do. They do. That and is they true. can stop yeah, the fire. A lot faster. And once once they once they get in, you know, and they stop that fire, the really the only way the maple the sorry, the oaks can compete is if they can keep fire going and keep those faster growing species out. So when you get faster growing species that can also put out fires that are forest fires, Forest fighters, sorry. Uh, Really, the oak trees, they can't survive. So it's an amazing thing. I hope when you guys go walking in the woods next time, dear listeners, walk amongst the giants and just appreciate the fact that we live amongst these trees that can be hundreds of years old, in some cases, thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. And they are adapted to, to, to fight with whatever tools they can to become the dominant species in that area. It's it's just amazing. It oh. I don't think about it often enough, but when I do, it really blows my mind and makes me appreciate how strange and wonderful and beautiful nature really is. Oh, just wild. Very cool, yeah. Oh. Hmm. Oh. Thank you, Kirk. Well, 
You are welcome. That's my deep thought for this week. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Alicia, I believe you have something to share with us, mm-hmm. correct? Yay! I'm very excited. Hey, everybody. Uh, you know, we got some uh, listener mail this week. A lot Ooh. of you guys are listeners on uh, po- Podbean. We're real popular over there. If you have the app, you can send us a message literally right now while you're listening to the show. Please do. We got one uh, during the last show, uh, our last show, I'm Going to Jacket the Dolphin, oh God. which was uh, quite a fun episode. <laughs> and this username, I don't know this user's uh, real name. I'm assuming this is not uh, what their parents named them. Uh, it was, uh, I'm going to do my best. I believe this is Portuguese. Homem, homem Salamandro, uh, which basically means, uh, I think, the man salamander. So they said, I love listening to the podcast while doing housework. It's one of the few things that helps me with doing chores. Thank mm. you for the knowledge and for the laughs. <laughs> well, you are welcome, uh, Mr. Salamander. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we appreciate, uh, we love hearing from people. Like what, if it's even a simple message like that, uh, it's really fun to hear that you guys are all enjoying the show. Uh, we appreciate, we do this for you. You know, it's fun. For, otherwise, we're just uh, talking to ourselves. So mm-hmm. thanks for being there. If you want to send us a comment, uh, you can do so uh, through an app like the Pondbean app. If you're on there, you can also email us uh, contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. So thanks so much for being out there and spreading the word and helping the show grow. Uh, let's get on to our next topic. Yeah, so I have a really cool topic. Um, we're going from the big, sc- the biggest, biggest scale to the smallest, smallest scale, but has had a very Ooh, big great. cultural impact. Um, so this is Ooh. we're sprinkling in a little bit of anthropological history here. Um, I'm so, so I excited, am Alicia. curious, what color do the two of you most associate with royalty? Purple. Ooh, yeah, purple. Yeah, purple. purple. Yes, but. The weird thing is purple is really rare in nature. Um, most things oh, that we think yeah. of as purple, like if you look at a, like a list of purple stuff in like a kid's book, is Looks not actually of, purple. It's usually like yeah, dark, it's like dark a really red. dark blue. Or a dark really dark red, blue. Dark, like yeah. yeah. And the other even more rare is um, purple that will... Uh, that can be used as a pigment that you can actually bind oh, to cloth, right? Yeah, for that's dyeing. wild. There's a specific type of purple dye um, from ancient times that is the reason why we associate purple with royalty. And it came from cool. a place Ooh. called Phoenicia, uh, which is in modern-day Lebanon on the Mediterranean Sea, specifically mm-hmm. the city of Tyre. And so this shade of purple became known as cool. Tyrian purple. Oh, cool. And it is a very, very vivid, deep purple. Um, it is in my bit looking at examples online, I sort of compare it to like the darkest part of a red onion, which is a purple onion, you know. Um, so like yeah. that oh, yeah, nice yeah, yeah. deep vivid purple when you like peel back the paper. In fact, part. when you when you talked about purple in nature, one of my first thoughts was like like an onion. Yeah. Like, which <laughs> a red onion, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, but Mm -hmm. so one of the really amazing things about this purple perk you mentioned, uh, color fast dye, is that this purple dye would actually not fade with sun exposure. It would get more purple. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. But I am curious. (laughs) Do you guys know how they made it? 
what it, where it came from? <sighs> I feel like I heard this story years ago. I, I mean, my first gut would be to say some sort of flower mm-hmm. is often a source for colors. But I'm guessing this involves some sort of completely off the wall process where you go, how oh, did someone oh yes. figure that out? Oh, yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> oh, perfect. fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the Tyrian purple dye is produced uh, using thousands and thousands and thousands of sea snails. What? Oh my! <laughs> sea snails. Okay. Okay. So who uh, looks at a sea snail and is like, "Yeah, that'll turn purple." Uh-huh. Well, actually, yeah. so well, there is a that's... mythic story as to how this uh, purple dye was discovered. Um, so oh, there. Okay. So the story goes that uh, Heracles or Hercules, if you're Roman, uh, was walking along hmm. a beach with his dog, and his dog saw a snail in the surf and was like, I want to chew on that and picked it up and was chewing on it. And the, the snail very startled squirted mucus and it stained the dog's mouth purple. And so Heracles decided to (laughs) use that purple to make a a dye for a nymph that he was courting. And the rest is history as they say. Uh, So it is, I mean, look, (laughs) if I had a dollar for every time I invented something while courting a nymph, you know, I, you would I'd, I'd be, be broke. broke. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so we're not we're talking specifically about the mucus. Are mm-hmm. they extracting the mucus, or are they just grinding grinding them up? Well, so that's a good question. So, uh, so this the particular snails that were used are in the family Muricidae, uh, and they're commonly called murex snails or rock snails. Uh, and there were a couple okay. of different species that they would most commonly use. Um, the most prevalent that they found in the archaeological record is uh, Bolinus brandaris and Hexaplex trunculus. Um, different snails actually yielded slightly different shades of purple, which is really interesting. Okay. Cool. Um, makes sense, I guess. Yeah, these snails are tiny. They're about two to three inches long. They've been around for about three and a half to two and a half billion years. Oh uh, and they are super plentiful right. in the Mediterranean. Uh, So they secrete a milky, colorless mucus. It is not purple mucus. Now, that's the weird thing. Whoa. Um, From their hypobranchial gland. It's colorless. They do this. uh, They use it to sedate prey. They also use it as an antimicrobial (laughs) on their eggs. Um, And then they also release it when threatened. So hence the dog picking it up and getting squirted with a bunch of mucus. Um, So the mucus is really high in bromine and carbon. And this bromine specifically oxidizes in the air and turns purple. Whoa. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was wondering when you said like the dog had eaten it, if it just got a mouthful of clear mucus, how would you know? Because that's... Right, right. Dog's mouths are pretty covered in... So the dog's mouth would have turned... Purple. Purple because of the oxidation going yes, on. Yes, because of the air. Okay. Yeah. So because they're sea snails, so typically they're releasing this mucus underwater. Um, so it's right there in the name. Yep. Yeah. So this uh, you're you're questioning how the heck someone figured out how to make dye out of this. So the ancient uh we we have archaeological evidence going back to around two thousand BCE. Um, not actually in modern Lebanon, but actually on the Isle of Crete, which is right across the ocean from Lebanon. Uh Um, But it wasn't until about 1200 BCE 
that the Phoenicians really kicked it off into like a whole industrial scale production of gotcha, this dye. Gotcha. Wow. And it was so, so important like, that actually this story oh. is on their money. There are Phoenician coins that have a dog biting a snail. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That's crazy. Cool. Yeah, so how they made it was really interesting and um, are a, a, a classic. If you've ever been interested in, in natural history, you've probably heard of Pliny the Elder. Uh, and he oh, no. described <laughs> uh, he described Friend of the show. how Tyrian Purple was made <laughs> in his natural history of fishes. Um, and so I'm not going to read you the whole thing because he has like a whole long paragraph describing the entire process. Um, so oh. the harvesting the snails obviously was at the seaside, but uh, the they needed to be really, really fresh in order to make the dye. So you had to process them pretty much right next to the ocean. Um, so they okay. would harvest thousands of snails um, and then they would extract their hypobranchial gland, which is the gland that produces the mucus. Um, this okay. unfortunately would kill the snail and they would just trash the rest of the snail. They would just toss it in a pile. And so there oh, are sure. vats of containing just thousands upon thousands of, of these shells from these various snails, um, which is really sad. Yeah, it's yeah, it was a total waste of snails. Yeah, imagine for thousands of years, yeah. you're going to yeah. have some... Some by, some byproduct waste going on there. Some mm -hmm. tailings are, yeah. But so remember, these snails are like two to three inches long. They're very tiny, and you're taking this tiny yeah. little gland that's probably like tiny, tiny. half the size of a Small. dime Ooh. out of out oh of gosh. this snail and putting that into a pot. So then they're putting it into a pot with a bunch of salt water, like really really salty water, and boiling that okay. for okay. three, or, uh, steeping that in the salt water for three days. And then they boil it for 10 days straight. And what? during that time, they skim off the, the, the grit at the top, which is like the left little like solid bits of the glands that come to yeah, the top. Yeah, yeah. And after 10 days of boiling it uh, and concentrating it down, uh, you have this extremely, extremely concentrated, vivid dye. And so from 900 gallons of liquid <sighs> at the start of that 10 days, you would concentrate down to just 60 gallons of dye. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Um, oh. That's... That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's estimated wow. that it took about 12,000 snails to make a gram and a half of dye, which is about enough to color just the trim on a garment. Whoa. Yeah. So this was this was extremely labor intensive, well, okay. extremely say that, say that expensive. Again. It's 12,000 snails. 12,000 snails. Right. To make just oh, I had a, to move a, the a, gram, I had. a gram and a half. A gram and a half of dye to make just the trim of your garment. We're talking like oh togas here, goodness. so it's a bit more trim than you or I would probably oh usually wear. But my. but yeah, it's that's like that's the width it's of a like lot. a belt or something. That's oh, mm -hmm. that's oh yeah. So again, as I said, extremely labor intensive, extremely expensive, and so very quickly this. Extre extraordinary color became associated with the royal class and the priestly class and actually um after um in the common era once christianity was established purple was the the color of cardinals for mm. the first right 10,000 or the first sorry the first 1000 years of the christian church 
cardinals were purple, not red. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so oh. the really interesting thing, as I said, different species would get slightly different colors of the dye. So the, the mm-hmm. two species I mentioned earlier, uh, Bolinus brandaris would give you sort of like a maroon purple dye. Um, Hexaplex trunculus gives you more like an eggplant purple. Um, and then okay, other, okay. there are even other species of snails that will give you red dyes and blue dyes through the same process. This is no, wild. I don't want that. I want the purple. Yeah. Um, the most, the most <laughs> I have other ways of getting blue dye. The most expensive and most sought after color um, that was is believed to be a combination of multiple different snails tones of, okay. of purple mm-hmm. that was described as the color of blackish clotted blood. It was like Whoa. black purple. Super, uh, super okay. dark purple. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm like that sounds sound like a, probably a cool color. I'm not in love with the description of took up my lovely <laughs> clotted blood colored clothing. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> you're either rich or a butcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're so you wrong. can. Or there are some butcher. really cool examples of Tyrian purple in um, like classical mosaics and paintings and frescoes of the early Roman sure, era. Yeah. Um, there's a really famous uh, mosaic of the Byzantine emperor Justinian wearing a robe of that dark black purple. Oh. Um, but the interesting thing is how Tyrian purple fell out of fashion. Uh, yeah. And it was Ooh. actually because of the sacking of Constantinople in 1204 during the Fourth Crusade. Because oh, wild. of course. Okay. I'm literally just going to say that. <laughs> oh, yeah, of, of course. course. Why wouldn't it be the sacking yeah. of Constantinople? Yeah, so it right. was this huge industry for about uh, around 2,000 years. Um, and That's a then, lot of snails. Yeah, a lot of snails. Mm-hmm. And they would actually breed the snails, too, to, to help keep the population. Oh, good. Up. I was worried. Sense. Yeah, um, but You'd so to, after scale. the sacking of Constantinople, mm-hmm. the Byzantine Empire, which was in control of this area of modern day Lebanon um, and the main like demand, the main money source for the industry uh, was broke. They didn't have enough money for these very, very, very fancy things. And so because there wasn't no. that demand, the industry kind of collapsed like people were st- could still they still knew how to make it, but like there wasn't money in making it anymore because there weren't really, really, really rich people anymore. And it was so labor right. intensive, you weren't going to do it for yourself. Exactly. You're like, it's, just, it's not worth it. Exactly. Like, why yeah. would I do And so, this? actually, like, uh, over time, the technique was actually forgotten and lost to history. Huh. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. It wasn't that's until. That's kind of like Roman. Um, that's kind of like. Uh, uh, Roman concrete? Roman concrete. Yeah. Yeah. That one I don't I think they still have not figured out how to make that. But in 1998, a team in uh, in the UK figured out how to make Tyrian purple. Uh they they cool. used Pl- Pl- Pliny's description of the process and also some later um descriptions from 15th century dyers who used um woad which is a plant in the brassica family so a relative of broccoli uh that is used for very vivid <laughs> blue dyes um Man, and what what can't brassica do <laughs> right? amazing the mvp brassica <laughs> um and so they figured out that they needed uh an alkaline solution so with the sea salt but but also with potash um, and then they had, mm-hmm. in order to get the right chemical reactions with the bromine, in order to get the mm-hmm. correct purple and to get it into a color fast dye. 
Um, and so as I was researching this, some really crazy things came up that like um, other other civilizations actually had also figured this out too, but just never brought it up Ooh. to an industrial scale. Uh, Whoa. So a quirk. some recent, some more recent um, anthropologists in the 1980s and 1990s ha- found um, this one particular group in Oaxaca, Mexico. This indigenous group has been doing pretty much the same thing, but not in the same way. So they've been using a species of snail called the purpura snail uh, that secretes a colorless mucus. Yep. (laughs) Secretes a colorless mucus (laughs) that when reacts with the sun and with oxygen turns purple. But the way that they do it does not kill the snail. They milk (gasps) the snail for its mucus. I was wondering if that was possible. I heard the story about them releasing it for defense. I'm like, couldn't you just milk it? Right. It's much more efficient. So Ah. what they do is that they, the fishermen are entrusted with these skeins of cotton and they go out in their boats and they pick up a snail and they run the thread along the edge of the snail's mantle which is the edge of its like the the foot the the soft squishy part mm-hmm. that comes out the bottom of the shell and get that mucus mm-hmm. on it and then once they've like run out of mucus they put the snail back in the water and they go to the next snail and they run they continue the the piece of thread until the entire thread has been dyed and uh so it, you also <laughs> it's really interesting because if they let it sort of naturally set in and react with the sunlight to turn purple. And right. so at different times of day, depending on the angle of the sun and the amount of sun, you'll get slightly different shades of purple. Oh, cool. That's mm-hmm. really okay. cool. So maybe the, the process, I was going to ask, the process of doing all the, the boiling and whatnot was to try to create a consistent yes, yeah. product rather yeah. than, okay. Yeah. Um, and so gotcha. something else that's really interesting from discovering this population of uh, indigenous uh, people in the Americas that have been using a similar technique uh, to make purple is that uh, modern folks can attest this purple stuff, although beautiful, it's very, very vivid, dark purple. It's stinky as heck. It reeks of fish smell. <laughs> it's really, really nasty smelling. And that was obviously really. would have been true of the historic dyes as well. And so some anthropologists have theories that this may be why uh, so many Greek and Roman <laughs> and Byzantine royals loved incense and perfume so much was to cover up the smell of their stinky stink. purple robes. Because they smell so bad and the dyeing process was so stinky also (laughs) that there were there were laws in the um in the area of phoenicia against um building a dyeing processing facility upwind of cities you had to build it downwind wow (laughs) and also uh the talmud which if you're unfamiliar is uh, an accompaniment to the torah which has a lot of information on uh jewish law uh has a provision that allows a Jewish woman to divorce her husband if he decides to go into dying as a trade after marriage. <laughs> wow. Like, honey, you come home stinking. <laughs> We're done. You, uh, you Amazing. There's smell and then there's smell. Smell. And so you can just walk right back out that door. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Ooh, mm-hmm. That's so cool. And so that's how a tiny, yeah, that's how a tiny little snail influenced the the color that uh, King Charles is going to be wearing at his coronation in a couple months here. Crazy. Well, we won't be there to smell it, but uh, 
You heard it here first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ugh. I just, that's wild. Like, mm -hmm. from a, a colorless mucus. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, thank you, Alicia. You're welcome. This thank was, you so much. This was an exciting we journey to research. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Oh. Well, let's uh, let's take a little break and we can all noodle on the color purple. And uh, when we come back, I think, Rachel, you've got you got something for us, too, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Like yes. See you Mischievous. Soon. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so uh, I'm really excited because um, whenever we do the show, whenever I'm doing my research, there's always more and just just bizarre critters that I want to talk about and that I want to cover. <laughs> and there's always ones that are on the list for like ages and ages and ages. But maybe it wasn't like it's not right, like hitting the right strange note that I'm like vibing with i guess is how we're gonna go with you haven't found the <laughs> angle yet or something yeah right um and it, it just hasn't earned it's like wow wild factor so that being said um shout out to my friend andrew for info dumping on me about this particular <laughs> topic until i had to go and research you, for andrew. myself <laughs> so sloths <laughs> Sloths. Oh, sloths, yes. Sloths. They are wild in and of themselves. Um, there's about six species. I, I say about. There's six species of sloth. Uh, generally, they ha are divided into two groups, the two-toed sloths and the three-toed sloths. Uh, and these are on their mm -hmm. forelimbs. All sloths have three toes on their hind legs. So it's just their three oh, clawed, hmm. crazy fingers that they have. Oh, um, those long claws, yeah. Yeah, and like sloths are crazy because like technically they're really good and efficient swimmers. They're faster at swimming than they are at walking or climbing. Um, huh. They three-toed sloths. I would get more into this, but this isn't the topic. Um, <laughs> oh, this isn't oh the goodness. topic. Okay. No, it isn't. <laughs> um, three-toed sloths especially eat almost exclusively plant material that is poor in nutrients actually and mm -hmm. with all of that with the craziness that is a sloth did you know that sloths actually create their own little or ecosystem yeah hmm. i yeah. know where, i know where you're going with that yeah i is did that know your topic bit. yeah <laughs> the little ecosystem <laughs> oh, that is, is so the sloth cool. fur buckle up kids Oh, it's wild. So sloths have like this really coarse fur and it actually um, is unlike every other fur on mammals. Um, it actually goes the opposite direction and like away from their forelimbs because they spend so much time upside down. Uh, so that way it huh. prevents the um, runoff from going to like their face um hmm. because oftentimes they're upside down so their fur is actually like it like when you pet a dog you have to pet it from head to tail a sloth head it would to be tail, tail yeah. to head huh. i had no for idea for the most part yeah um 
sloths, uh, that all being said, they have a whole uh, ecosystem in that fur. In their fur, right. Mm. In their fur. Bizarre. Right. So all sloths are located in the tropical rainforest in Central and South America, where it's really humid and it rains quite a lot. Um, But due to how slow they move, uh, which is, by the way, 13 feet per minute, or if they're in a rush or threatened, 15 feet per minute. (laughs) Woo, slow down, sloth, slow down. (laughs) Woo. They're actually able to grow a specific algae that is only found on sloths. Oh man, that is it is wild. Not found anywhere else, just sloth fur. So, which works out great, you know. Uh, the algae has a place to be anchored, and it protects them from a lot of different predators. Uh, the sloth gets to be camouflaged from their predators, like the puma or the uh, hawk eagle. Um, mm. and so that's, that's how it is protecting them is by making them camouflage. Yes. Uh, it camouflage. gives them a lot more camouflage in the high treetops. It also provides mm. them a snack. <laughs> um, um, gross. Please tell me more. <laughs> so they don't necessarily eat the algae, but because of the ecosystem that they've actually curated, because the algae is cultivated and like gardened and curated by the sloth. It's not just oh, wow. growing on the fur. They're actively like working with it to like amazing give it the best life it can. Um, they even actually pass the algae down from mother to offspring, like from mother sloth to baby sloths. Oh, that makes sense. They'll it does. But it's crazy to me that, oh, yeah, I wonder here, if have you could, algae. Like, <laughs> genetically identify whose mom was who based on I the bet algae you could. growing on them. Like, you probably that could. That would be really cool. Um, yeah. But this algae, research like, actually, project. research <laughs> out there. Um, but this algae actually ends up being really nutrient rich and actually helps bring nutrients back into the sloth via diffusion um, because it creates a lot more like nitrogen. Part of the reason why hold it can on, have... Hold on. Yes. You, you're saying like they're absorbing the nutrients like through their skin from the algae? A little bit, yeah. What? That is bonkers, Rachel. I That's know. That's completely bonkers. Yeah. Go on. Tell yeah, me more. It's uh, lipid rich. So they cultivate it and everything. So they help to grow it. But so a little bit goes into their skin, but they, the um, algae itself is actually very lipid rich. So they are okay. able to, they do actually eat some of it too, to help um, mm. supplement their diet. To get their fat intake. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wh- As, uh, right. Um, they're farming on their skin skin and eating it it's not Mm -hmm. real appealing but um i wonder could sloths could sloths be maybe loosely considered the first mammalian lichens Ooh, because a lichen is a fungus and an algae yeah yeah Hmm. they could 
I like your brain's going. I like it. I, li- I like it. It's good. Uh, but wait, that is not all. Oh, well, there's Sloths, more. There's more. Sloths also play host to numerous arthropods, bunch of different beetles. They can even have fungi uh, that grow in their fur. Um, beetles, just everything. But what I really want to focus on is there's... Yeah, <laughs> is a specific <laughs> group of moths that are called the sloth moths. Oh my goodness! <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> they and have they, Latin like, names. Their whole I'm life not cycles going to a, try. on a, a sloth. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um. There's about five species uh, that I could find, but there could be uh, like one or two more. Um. These these moths live exclusively. In the sloth fur. And all the sloths. Wow. They eat the algae on the sloth. And they help create a nutrient-rich and nitrogenous base for the algae to grow. Because they are Mm. living and pooping and things on the sloth. Not only that, uh, but so this this fur is full of frass and moss and oh one hundred percent snails and just the the just the the most so it really lush, is a whole ecosystem, yeah. whole ecosystem on this lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, what's crazy too is this: these moths, when the sloth climbs down for their weekly poop, because if they weren't weird enough, sloths will climb down once a week. Just dig a hole with their tail. Oh, they dig a hole. Poop, That's great. They dig a hole. <laughs> Poop in Very the holes, and then cover it back up and climb back up the tree. <laughs> wow! When they're doing Unbelievable. that, unbelievable! Just nuts. Uh, the female <laughs> sloth moths, uh, when right. they are pregnant and they have all their eggs, will fly down into the scat, drop off their eggs in the scat, and then attempt to fly back to the sloth. Those okay. eggs will then develop and eventually metamorphose in the scat. Huh. Okay. And then once they're and then an adult, adults, they find a sloth. They fly back and find the closest sloth and start huh. all over again. That's really interesting because I mean, when impressive. you said. When you said moths, I thought it, I assumed it was going to be the caterpillars that were in the sloth. But nope, that's interesting. it's the adults. Oh, huh. Yeah. I say, in all fairness, you said they have to, you know, refine a sloth. The original sloth that laid the poop is probably only like twenty <laughs> feet away at that point. You know, exactly. So it's, they're not going real far. They they don't have to go <laughs> there. Where there's sloth much. poop, there's sloths. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they their life cycle is completely dependent on these sloths which is wild um Mm -hmm. yeah i andrew started talking about these sloth moths and i was like i'm sorry what now (laughs) and i knew i had to talk about it must know more i had to know more and by golly there's a lot there's even more than i have uh covered today um just oh sure sure. the Mm -hmm. diversity like they scientists were studying um this uh, relationship and they've found like up to 120 or over 120 moths on a single sloth. So like it's a booming ecosystem. (laughs) 
Oh man. Wow. It's a whole jungle. Yeah. Like, and again, these moths aren't huge. They're pretty relatively small. Um, but still still. that's a lot of moths in one floth's fur. So Mm -hmm. it's crazy. I'm pretty (laughs) confident to say that there are no moths in my hair at this moment. Like it is I'm also confident about this, yes. We talked about the sense of scale, though, when, uh, a little bit in, in, in my segment. Mm-hmm. There absolutely are things living in your hair right now. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there are things living in my beard. Like, and we know one of the very early episodes, uh, Victoria talked about mites. The, you know, the mites that Ugh. come out of your face at night and mate on your face. Like, I'm glad we could bring that are, back. Yeah. There are, yeah, we got to come full <laughs> circle on that one. There are, there are, millions of things living on us they're just you know we don't they don't see them they're maybe not quite as visual so we don't think about it but mm-hmm. it's not we have our own ecosystem too you know yeah. bacteria mm-hmm. and mites and things like that so mm-hmm. it, i guess it's not that unusual i'm not trying to downplay the weirdness of your topic it's very <laughs> right weird. but it's like <laughs> it's, it's bizarre it's, it's funny that we think of it as being so strange when really it's probably all animals have their own ecosystem around them. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only around them. You think of your, like your gut biome, your micro right. your oh, biome. Yeah. It's insane. Oh, um, mm-hmm. and how much we rely on them, and they rely on us. It can be really crazy. But um, we'll say truly, we are an ecosystem both inside and outside the human donut. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> humans are uh, humans are just donuts. We know this, right? Okay, well, uh, that's a separate topic. It's true, and you should. Yeah, say it, it is. It is. Oh my gosh, I have had this argument. And we before. also develop anus first. <laughs> that yes, that is true. We've covered that actually. Yeah. Which is awful. Um, We've had, we had a whole that. episode on the anus actually. <laughs> yeah, we did. That was an early-ish episode. Rachel covered the anus. Yeah, I did. <laughs> My poor search history. I believe if you're for, for reference, I believe that episode might be called More Butts Than You Might Expect or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's one I ended up talking about the mini assed hydra worm on the very <laughs> same episode. And we're like, wow, yeah. we're both talking about butts. All right. <laughs> yep. That's funny. Uh, well, that's what I had for you all today. Um, yeah, there's a whole ecosystem there truly are the lion turtles of the rainforest um which is really fun uh but yeah thanks for everybody for joining us alicia thank you for joining us again alicia thanks so much for being here what a fun topic yeah um yeah thanks everybody for listening we'll see you all next week bye see you then Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.